0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. In this episode, I sit down with Kristen Skinner, Managing Director at Adaptive Path, Head of Design Management at Capital One, and co-author of Org Design for Design Orgs. We talk about setting your team up for success, helping non-designers realize design's business value, and what you can learn from the Golden State Warriors. Enjoy the show. Kristen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Mary. It's my pleasure to be here. I'd love for you to start off and tell folks a little bit about what you do at Adaptive Path and Capital One.
1: That's been a question I get a lot lately. (laughs) Um, You may be aware that Adaptive Path has been part of Capital One for almost two years now. October will be our two-year anniversary after the acquisition. And a few things have changed. You may, may not be surprised to learn. But I'll be honest, much of of what we were doing um, from a consulting perspective has stayed fairly similar. We Mm -hmm. have more or less the same size team from when we were uh, external consultants, if you will, Mm -hmm. to being now the in-house service design team for Capital One. We have tightened up our services a bit, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that. And we're finding ourselves now in the um, very beneficial position of being able to take a lot of the practices and methods and hypotheses, if you will, around service design and applying them in-house, which is something that we would rarely, if ever, get the chance to do as consultants. So we are now operating kind of in a, as a three-legged stool. So the Main part of our practice is still, is still service experience design. That's not changed since we were working as um, consultants for Capital One. But the, the big things that have changed for us are, of course, our customers. So we have now have access to 45,000 plus employees at Capital One to help us really with subject matter expertise, to understand business processes, to understand analytics. Um, lots more capabilities, of course, that we get to work with hand in hand day to day. Partnerships. We also are looking across the entire organization, so that means that we can work closely with our colleagues in card, uh, the branded card business, and in card partnerships. We can work closely with the folks in consumer bank um, and also folks in financial services, which includes auto loans, home loans, and, and um, our dealer network. Uh, we also have uh, partnerships with the rest of the organization. So there's also lots of activity happening in investments, in small business and there's internal capabilities as well that we help we get to partner with
0: wow so so let me just ask you a question how many designers are there within
1: sure um We're fortunate that we are in multiple locations all across the United States. So that that means we get to tap into talent uh, from different geographies and different regions. And we also have different levels of um, capabilities, if you will, or different specialty practices across the organization. One of the things that I already mentioned, of course, was the service design practice. But we benefit from having a well-established design thinking and strategy team that we get to partner with. Um, There's a user labs and research team. And they're in six locations as of next week. And we also have, let's see, a content strategy team, which is a really interesting model. It's one that we haven't seen before, at least not in my experience, run by a woman named Steph Hay, who has a journalist background. And she has brought a perspective to design, which is really around designing the conversation that we want to have and going from there versus starting with screens. So there's, all in all, I, you know, of the of the design organization, we're relatively small compared with the rest of the forty five thousand person company that we were partnering with. But given the the research that that Peter and I have done for the book uh, that we'll talk about in a moment, we haven't really found this structure in place. So it's been um, it's been eye opening for us. To come in with the experience that we had had from Adaptive Path, you know, 13 years, over 500 clients, 14 different uh, countries, and and really get to see a lot of the, um, the great work that the team's already been doing at Capital One. It was a big draw for us, frankly.
0: That's awesome.
1: That's awesome.
0: So who are your competitors? Um, you know, because it's an interesting combination, I think. You know, many of us remember a few years back of the announcement, but I'm
1: still trying to wrap my head around how it all works. Sure. That's a great question. If we think about it from a customer standpoint, there's, of course, the standard bearers. So you think about other financial institutions, other banks, of course. Startups, absolutely. I think Capital One benefits from being the position of being a relatively new financial services institution, meaning we came about, uh, it's founder-led and came about towards the end of the last century, whereas other mm. companies with similar offerings have been around for you know 100 plus years competitively though one of the things that um, is probably not uncommon for for lots of folks lots of the enterprises and lots of the companies that are trending toward taking design in-house and really investing in it the competition is really amongst um, other software companies so we hire a lot of folks um, from all different, types of com- of businesses small medium and large but you know there are, there will be people that come from into it there's folks that have come from Google um, we have had a couple of people join from eBay uh, sony is another one so there's there's a whole range of different types of companies where people on our design team especially come to um, and are drawn to to work with the sort of the culture and the challenges that we have and the initiatives we've developed for ourselves at capital one
0: and that's awesome so um is there anything more you want to share about what you're doing there before I I move on because I'd love to talk a little bit about your book.
1: Absolutely. Um, So I'll give you a couple of examples of the type of work that we're doing when we talk about doing service design Mm -hmm. in-house. We, of course... Service design does not happen in a vacuum and we don't go it alone. So we look for opportunities where we can have impact for the business and our customers primarily, but we also consider our customers our internal colleagues. So if you think about reinventing services, reimagining services and coordinating across touch points, creating service blueprints, understanding customer journeys, really figuring out roadmaps and plans to get there. We can look at it from the customer's perspective and figure out what would an onboarding experience look like, for example, for a new card customer. Or we can talk with our uh, internal partners, say, from different departments like legal or audit, who are providing a service to their constituents, the rest of the employees. And we can help them figure out how to reimagine the service that they're providing. It's kind of, you can consider that kind of a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a lot of folks who are in those positions and who are leading those teams to have the opportunity to take service design methods and approaches and apply it to their own their own business, if you will.
0: So you're really, I mean, it's interesting to hear the the internal customer piece of it because I imagine obviously Capital One was a design aware company enough to obviously buy a design (laughs) agency. But to teach people sort of how to view the relationships with customers differently. I imagine that's a, a big piece. I mean, is education a big piece of what you're doing internally with with your counterparts in other departments?
1: It is. Yes, there's certainly an appetite for it. We did have a design thinking and design strategy group that led the way, and they um, laid a great foundation in terms of teaching design in general to a b- much broader internal audience, especially an executive audience. Um, and then we're focusing more on uh, the methods that help to support delivering service. mm mm-hmm. um, and then, of course, we have—I um, shouldn't say of course—but we also have a couple other competencies now that we've we've uh, more we've formalized and we've developed um, since we've been in house. And one of those is sort of the evolution of the spirit of the founding of Adaptive Path in the first place. It was a place where people could come together and share what we've been learning back with the community. Adaptive Path was always a very open, I would say kind of open source mentality company to work for in that we encouraged that leadership, we encouraged people to go out and develop their own voice to go speak and teach and share back what we were learning. And so we're taking that same spirit in-house with Capital One, and we've partnered with their community affairs team to create uh, a new, I guess, line of business, if you will, but really a new practice or a new focus called uh, AdaptivePAP.org. And so that's an opportunity for us to teach design methods and involve our design partners to teach design methods to nonprofits in our own communities. Uh, We're starting in San Francisco, but we expect that to to go nationally. Uh, The other thing that we've created is a design management practice. And we talk about this in the book, not specifically as a case study for Capital One, but in general, as part of a maturity model. So as your organization gains velocity, it gains scale, it gains maturity, there's different levels of scale within your design organization in terms of where your practitioners are focused. Once, you, once your teams get to a certain size, there becomes a very real need for leadership to be focused on more of the operational matters that um, help to really enable designers to do their best work. And that's what our design management practice is all about.
0: Neat. Very neat. Oh, wow. So you're really expanding in all sorts of ways.
1: We are. So let's get to your
0: book. So you wrote this awesome little book. Um <laughs> titled org design for design orgs. And in it you said something that really kind of jumped out at me. You said, many design teams have the raw talent to realize their new expanded role, but don't have the maturity to embrace it. And I thought, hmm, um, can you elaborate on on that a bit and and what you think about it and what you su- you know you suggest to other folks who find themselves in a position like this?
1: Absolutely. So I think there's a few things at play. I mean, the first is kind of really setting the stage for what's happening right now. Why is there this shift, this notable, sizable shift where companies are investing in design like never before? We recognize that you know, the latter part of, of last century and even into this century, there was a keen focus on uh, squeezing greater efficiency um, out of teams. So that's run its course. We were, you know, there's the, um, the famous Mark Andreessen quote about software is eating the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in 2004, I believe, uh, IDEO was on the cover of Business Week magazine declaring that design can help shape business. And so, so that trend has been happening over time, but it's really been over in the last 10, probably even five years, where design teams are really, really starting to scale. We recognize the generative qualities uh, for design can help to realize new business value. And that the old methods of management and develop, around development specifically that require a real keen focus on efficiency and a real keen focus on uh, value that you're getting out of every hour, every line of code, et cetera, doesn't fit well. It doesn't It doesn't sync up with with the generative qualities of design. We also recognized that there's a shift right now as well, or there's there's a trend where you have the raw talent. There um, are a lot of schools and programs now where you can you can actually get your certification in uh, certain disciplines of design. But there's really a big gap in figuring out how to scale design. And most design books, most information that you find out there, and we found this in our research to be true, They're they're mostly about design practice. So what sort of tools, what sort of uh, methods and approaches and processes for doing the design work exist and, and are shared broadly? And then what are the case studies to show how that work um, has actually affected products and services out in the real world? So that's the, that target audience is really meant for those design practitioners. We wanted this book to really be about addressing that shift that I just described around being able to um, help these enterprises figure out how to realize their investment. So we believe that design should be a core competency. It should be on the par with, on par with sales, information technology, development, marketing, et cetera. But it's not a mature as mature a practice. So that's why we really wanted to focus on helping organizations either see a path to get there and hopefully in the future be able to talk even more broadly about what those success stories look like.
0: Mm. It's really, it's such a valid point. I mean, people when they talk about design as a corporate asset and all of that wonderful business, it's, but let's not forget, we're not as mature as some of our other counterparts and disciplines. Um, That's right.
1: So we, yeah, we took the approach of instead of saying this is how you should do it, because frankly, we don't, we don't know. We, we (laughs) haven't figured that out. (laughs) You know, we, we are like many of our our peers and we've been making it up as we go along and trying things and seeing what works and what doesn't. Um, And there's no guidebook right now for it. But the but the reality of it is that we um, we wanted to. Well, the reality of it is that it depends on context. So if we even if we were to prescribe step by step how to do it, it probably wouldn't hold up based on your context. Meaning, we won't be able to consider your funding models. We won't be able to consider uh, how mature other parts of your organization are. We won't be able to consider your culture. So instead, we took the approach of providing guiding principles and frameworks and pillars, if you will. and, and structured the book so that we could really sort of set the stage for why is this happening? What's, what's the, where have we come from and where do we think we're headed? Mm-hmm. And then um, kind of from a thematic point of view, really figure out kind of what are the qualities that make for an effective design organization? That's really a big core part of it. We, we identified actually 12 qualities in three different uh, categories and then figuring out, okay, well, once you, once you decide that and you, you kind of gen- directionally know where you're going. What are the brass tacks of how to actually do it? Um, and that's where we really, we really did hone <laughs> uh, our collective experiences on hiring, uh, headcount, figuring out uh, where to find great candidates, figuring out how to run a great interview process, and then going even further down, figuring out once you've got great people on board, how do you organize them? What skills do you need? What are the different levels and frameworks for Career development. How do you support multiple career paths, etc.? There's a whole chapter as well on understanding culture and values and environments, both physical and cultural environments, so that you can really respond to, anticipate, and try to respond to how teams can get their best work done. Mm -hmm. We of course talk about cross-team collaboration, and then we talk about what's next. That's
0: that's great. So let me ask you a question. You um, maybe this is part of what you just described operating agreements which I hadn't really thought about but I mean hilarious that you called out (laughs) Cruz's operating agreement which I was like they had one um well frankly I'm I'm sure they had one I was just surprised at how smart and I don't know (laughs) to be fair I think they were forced to
1: have one I think they were so incredibly dysfunctional that they got to a point where there was um I should know his name in fact there was a uh, somebody who came in who was a business manager, and he agreed to help them. But his one main requirement was that they actually come together. And uh, it was their manager. He joined them in 1994, and he he insisted that they have a, a a more structured and formal approach to how to how they would operate as a business. And the funny thing is, is that uh, they went from pure dysfunction to being one of the longest running groups in history, despite, you know, heroin addiction, drugs, alcohol, everything, you, you name it, they, they went through it, but they were able to, uh, to endure because they had a set of guidelines and principles that they had all agreed they would adhere to. Um, I think it applies to the, to the audience for the book, and I think it applies in design very well, not, and not even necessarily in design, but in business, where you are um, being asked to do something, you're most likely not able to do that thing on your own, and you're being asked to do it with a group of people, so you all have accountability to one another. So without some sort of agreement about who's doing what and what you're trying to accomplish together, I think we've seen this. Things fall apart very, very quickly or they fall apart very, very slowly and painfully. (laughs) (laughs) And you waste, you know, you waste time and energy and effort and money. And um, it it can be a hard recovery period for folks to, to come out of that. You know, there's some hard habits that get formed there that are hard to undo later.
0: Right. Well, and it's also interesting because you're putting everybody on the same, like you're checking in, like we're all on the same page. This is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. This is, you know, where we want to be, how we want to get there. But it's, it's fascinating to me that it's such a big piece of common sense that I think is assumed in a lot of teams that everyone knows exactly what it is that's important. Um, and it's not always the case. And as you said, things can die down quickly or slowly and painfully. <laughs>
1: If uh, there <laughs> isn't right.
0: that, that sort of uh, you know, understanding, shared That's understanding.
1: Right. Yeah. That's the idea. Be explicit up front. Yeah. And and as things change and all the way through.
0: True, true.
1: Um,
0: so I'm I this is one that I am dying to know more about. How do you recruit and like what's your interview process like? <laughs> because first of all, you're hiring for specialties, but you're also I imagine hiring a certain kind of personality. So I'd love for you to just talk about the process.
1: So there's the, how do you recruit? And then there's, how do you actually recruit? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So of course we've got, we've got teams in place, right? We've got great partnerships. We've got a great recruiting team that is talking to universities, uh, colleges out there on campus. We've got, and I'm obviously grossly underestimating the level of effort that they have, but we also have our designers who are on staff. So What we expect people to do is to um, be able to sort of demonstrate what they, what the opportunities are, demonstrate and articulate, articulate is probably a better way to say it, what the opportunities are and what's so great about working here. Here's the thing I'm working on. Here's what my team is like. Here's the opportunities for me. Oh, and by the way, here's actually what's really hard. So having somebody kind of on the inside or somebody who's actually on the inside talking about. Their experience, I think, is is one facet. and having that expectation for your team. it's not the goal is not to find other people like me or like you. It's more to um to have representatives who can really speak to kind of the real deal. so that's that's one facet of it. It's not a formal thing by any means, but it's more of a cultural thing where you're you're you know it's an expectation that you set interviewing is a really interesting thing. We, in fact, um, there's a whole chapter about it <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we have some pretty strong opinions about kind of some, some things to avoid. Um, I think, you know, one that's worth mentioning is do not give design tests. Um, that can be quite controversial to say out loud, but we feel very strongly that, um, design is a process. It is not a, a specific sort of start, finish, start, middle, and end with a, with a timer next to you that Immediately absolves all of the other considerations, <laughs> all of the other um, subject matter experts that you would need to consult and that you should be consulting when you're trying to come up with uh, with sort of a multitude of design solutions. That's one facet. But but back to the recruiting and hiring. So first, you know, having a really strong team. Secondly. Knowing where you're going, rather than just kind of you know having that ten thousand foot view, where you can you can look out and say, how might this person fit in with the team that I currently have? But even more importantly, how does this person help me shape where we need to go? Um, so really try to look at things holistically when you're mm-hmm. thinking about because it's very easy to when you're talking to one candidate to just to be thinking about that one candidate, but really as a leader, you've got to be thinking about the team and the culture and the company.
0: Mm-hmm. So is there one particular attribute that you look for? Like, is there one thing that you must have?
1: Mindset, mm. so I mean, there's qualifications, obviously that you you know once you're you're talking to somebody, you assume that you've met all of those. but first and foremost, especially for the team that we're hiring for right now, first and foremost, it's mindset. It's those things like being able to read the room. It's having confidence, it's being a good facilitator, uh, being able to understand when to really sort of push and when to sort of lean back, when to lean in, when to lean back. So lots of the, you know, I, I actually just finished an exercise of going through um, a skills framework for design management, and I was able to narrow it down to three levels, which I felt pretty good about, because everything I've seen is five or higher. Even in the book, we have five or higher. So my, my personal goal was like, can I make this smaller? <laughs> <laughs> but what ended up happening was, it was so um, lopsided on soft skills. So and let me see if I can even give you an example. So soft skills, things like negotiation, facilitation, mm-hmm. those are the big ones. <laughs> but really, communication was huge. That's a, in, in a bucket all, in and of itself. Um, but the mindset for me has always been one of the leading indicators of how successful somebody's going to be. And you can assess that pretty quickly even through a phone call, but certainly, you know face to face, I think it's something that you can you can really appreciate. Really understanding how people approach different problems, how people approach their work, how people approach collaboration. Mm. Those are the areas that I really like to focus on to help figure out who's going to be successful and who may not be the best fit.
0: Mhm. Um so what what kind of lessons? Give me a few examples of the lessons you've learned from both building and managing in
1: house. Sure. Teams. Sure. So I have the benefit of kind of having a little bit of a ping pong career where I started <laughs> I started mm-hmm. uh in startups. And then I went to Microsoft and then I left Microsoft and came to Adaptive Path, which was at the time, I think 40 people. Mm -hmm. Um, Microsoft was 90,000. And then I went back to 45,000. So um, uh, startups versus enterprise versus consulting versus enterprise um, has been, you know, thematically, there's there's the lessons across all of that. Um, But I would say from being in-house now, one of the bigger challenges, and I knew this going in was going to be around, tools and process. We work for a bank. There needs to be rules and regulations. (laughs) There needs to be governance. Uh, There needs to be a legal team. So I think just having all of those considerations and taking those into account when you're thinking about how to build the team, they're going to have a pretty significant effect and impact. So knowing kind of where those boundaries are and figuring out how to work within those what's the best way to work within those boundaries I think is really really important lesson to and that again goes back to your own mindset right like if if you've had the experience for let's say five years I was I was with adaptive path for um I was there four years actually before we got acquired so if you have the the nimbleness to hire for a small consultancy and then you go in-house then you've got to make that mindset shift first or at least know that it's coming Mm -hmm. so that you're not disappointed or you're not frustrated and how long things actually take—that's a really big, obvious lesson. <laughs> I think some of the more nuanced things are around um, the sort of the surprise and delight where people really making assumptions on behalf of, of people, and I think this is a little bit of a, a the net effect of um, how our consultants, our practitioners felt about working in finance. And this is this is a sort of a gross exaggeration, but um, many of the folks that wanted to come to work for Adaptive Path, really wanted to make, have an impact and, and get their work out into the world, but really have an impact and help people. That was like the number one reason why people would work for Adaptive Path. They wanted to help people improve their lives. So naturally we gravitated toward healthcare, um, in some cases toward hospitality, uh, retail to a certain extent, but really healthcare was a big one. Financial services is the other one in our minds that we we know we can have a big impact but i think from a consulting perspective we recognized that it was we had such a higher degree of challenge because we had such a short time frame and we could only do so much in terms of recommendations there was no way that we could ever see things through so coming into a financial services company gives us the opportunity to fully realize or potentially realize that personal professional mission that a lot of us have which is really to not just get our work out into the world but to really have a difference on people's lives and i think what what the, the mind shift was for a lot of us was, oh, right, finance affects everything. And we live in the United States where we have literally zero opportunity um, to learn about finance through the regular public education system. Um we have to go out there and do it on our own and we're influenced in many different ways. You know, Some are by how we're, our upbringings and, and how we're brought up and some we, is because we've made bad financial decisions because we didn't know any better. Um, some is because we've put ourselves through college and then we immediately graduate, don't have a job and have you know, 100K in debt. So it's kind of a long way of saying that um, one of the lessons I've learned is just being very um, delightfully surprised by how many people really want to come and work at a financial services institution to make a difference and have a big impact. And I think that that's a testament to the design organization that's been created that we're now a part of, um, where it's really drawing those folks in because that opportunity is there and it's very real.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and I think to some degree, (laughs) everyone feels the pain of dealing with a financial services company. Um, Everybody
1: has to deal with finances. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an emotional thing. And if you don't have control or understanding or information. Um, it can affect many different facets of your life. Mm-hmm. And
0: I think, I, I think the other part of that is that, to some degree, I think not obviously your employer, but there are there are financial institutions that you know. I don't think they intentionally meant to be horrible customer experiences. <laughs> the source of horrible customer experiences, but it's it can be difficult. And that's right. Um, and that just screams for a disruption. So it's really nice to see, you know, such a large organization being so aware and ahead of the curve, really, to say, OK, you know, this is important to us. We need to do something about it. Yep. Um. So I hear you're a great manager. So I want to ask you, <laughs> what do you think it is that that helps you?
1: I thank you. <laughs> um, well, I can tell you one thing that I try, I, I strive for is to create an environment where people can chart their own course. I try to find the balance between giving folks enough direction around objectives and goals and results um, and frameworks and um, principles. But I, I very much encourage people to let me know how I can support them versus me telling them how I, I want to support them mm-hmm. or, or telling them what I expect them to do. And I, I don't think that that's hopefully that that's, that's not uncommon. But the the other thing that, that I do pay a lot of attention to is just making sure that I am paying attention to where people are. So meeting them where they are in the sense that if I have a team of 16, for example, or 15, for example, that's actually true right now. So I have a team of 15 people. I want to make sure I understand, um, even though folks' jobs can be quite different, they're in different geographies, they're in different parts of the business. I want to know what's important to them, and I want to know how I can help them be more successful. So some people may be, it may may be very apparent that they are, you know, people managers, they have a plan, they have a vision, and I don't want to make the assumption that they don't need as much advice, guidance, or attention as somebody who's just joined the company. So I really try to make sure that I have a view on that and check myself the other thing I, I really try to pay attention to, and this is it sounds cliche, but it's it's not. It's diversity. And and by that I mean diversity of thought, diversity of experience, and diversity of perspective. So I've been really fortunate that I've been able to hire folks into this role, even though it is a design function. It's, it's a leadership role. It's, it's where we are making things go. That's literally what how we describe design management at Capital One as part of the design organization. We are, we are responsible for making things go. That can be very broad. Um, and it, it does require the mindset that I described earlier, but it also requires uh, people to have a level of experience working with multiple teams, multiple different disciplines, and being able to then... Facilitate a conversation that may be being had in multiple different styles, languages, locations, uh, over time, et cetera, and really parse that out quickly to help keep moving people along. One thing that I really liked, uh, that I heard recently, actually, uh, it's something that Andrew Crow wrote for, for the book in his foreword. He wrote, um, that this book helps to shine a light between problems, people and projects. And I really believe that, um, taking that sort of an approach for your team and reminding them that the role that they're playing is one of sort of information synthesizer. Mm So it may not feel like you're actually checking a box or getting things done on a day-to-day basis. So if you're a completionist, this might not be the role for you. (laughs) However, (laughs) uh, what's more important is you're bringing people along with you. You're helping to identify the right projects and programs and portfolios of work that we should really be focusing on. You're taking a customer-first perspective. You're taking the perspective of understanding how benefit to the customer also benefits the business. So when we think about um, how to manage a team like that, it's really making sure that people have that affinity for being able to generate, well, not even generate, but really sort of interpret sort of business value, conversations that are being had, customer value, and really kind of keep everybody aligned as best they can toward a common goal. Mm.
0: So part translator. (laughs) <laughs> part connector, part facilitator. But it is. It's an interesting, it's a That's very right.
1: different skill set. Um, it is. It's a very unique skill set. A lot of people struggle with it, or just, I think, what, what one of the challenges we're seeing in, in design in general is that we are um, automatic, like career paths aren't clear. So we're automatically taking folks who are at, at, at the core, they're practitioners, they are craftsmen and women, um, they're makers. And we're saying, okay, you've been in this role for eight years, so therefore you're now our manager. What does that mean? Okay, now they have operational responsibilities and they're managing people's careers and they're managing role definition and product definition. It's just, it can be completely overwhelming for folks who are right-brained versus left-brained and not everybody can sort of bridge that gap. So really recognizing kind of what what sort of uh, traits and mindset people have, I think is one of the first steps. Mm-hmm. And, in, and it's an ongoing thing because it changes over time as well. So it takes it takes focus, it takes care, and it takes commitment to really help people move through that and navigate it.
0: That's excellent. Um, maybe this is, this is the, you've already answered the question I'm going to ask next with what you just said, but I'll ask it anyway. What do you think is um, the biggest challenge facing the design community today?
1: Sure. I think, I think there's a couple things at play. I think one is, is the, um, Career development, uh, career paths. I think each company is trying to figure them out on their own. So if you're at one company and you move to another, it may be two, you may be on two totally d- different ends of the spectrum, yet you still have an expectation about where you're headed. Um, I don't think that there's a common framework or common language, at least none that we've seen in our conversations and in our research around how to level up as a designer. Right now, there's the individual contributor path and then there's the manager track. But it doesn't really take into account the craftspeople who want to continue to go deeper and broader in their craft, but aren't necessarily interested in managing people. The work that IBM is doing right now around that, I think is significant. I think it's, it's very necessary now that they have 1,250 designers, but (laughs) (laughs) when they declared they were going to have a thousand, I'm not sure what their next target will be, but, (laughs) but, um, it's, exemplary in terms of kind of where we all need to be when we're thinking about how people move through their careers. We want to provide a support system. We want to provide visibility into where they're headed. But what we don't want to have happen is to force people into a system because we haven't thought through it where they may want to be just individual contributors. And instead we're saying, you've been in your field for 10 years, therefore we need you to be a people manager. And we're going to ask you to do all of these things that you probably don't even have the skill set for just because of your seniority. So I think there's a challenge there and that's that's a, a challenge to management. It's, it's a challenge to practitioners as well to really sort of, I guess I'll go so far as to say, demand that, you know, to demand that sort of visibility when you're thinking about your career and when you're thinking about even shifting it over into a new company or into a different part of your organization to make sure that that's well thought through. I think a lot of times I've seen, you know, practitioners to say, okay, we draw my future for me. <laughs> And I think that that's that's a really slippery slope. Um, it has to be, it has to be well informed, and it's gotta it's gotta be a conversation rather than just uh, telling folks, okay, well, if you do these things, then you'll automatically get to this level. I think that there's um, there's a lot of work that can be done around helping our community of design sort of orient around what those levels look like. I'm not saying it's just one size fits all by any means, but I feel like there's a lot more we could do as a community to make that more transparent.
0: Mm, it feels as though it's a little bit of. I mean, there needs to be more structure, but at the same time, there's this whole pick-your-own-adventure kind of <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. feel to it. So, but you can't go too far in either direction. Um exactly. or It might just be chaos. So, one final question: beyond your own work, what what is uh, grabbing your attention, people or projects these days?
1: So, I think uh, from a design community perspective, I think what's really been interesting is seeing lots more activity, uh, not just here in the US, but, but globally around design management. Um, that's been really fascinating to to see and to hear kind of how We've come from, you know, I just need to get the design right to, I just need to get the strategy right to, I just need to get the design organization right. It's a big part of why we wrote the book. We even talk about situationally, like if you think about the Golden State Warriors um, <laughs> in t- you know, t- 2013, 2014, they had a different management team than they have in place right now. And they were a team of exemplary players and they lost in the first round of the playoffs. Um, management was out, new management came in and the very next year they were NBA champions. So it's not a coincidence. I mean, there's a responsibility um, from manager's perspective to really, really focus on creating the right environment. The challenge is having to be beholden to timelines and budgets and and, uh, forces outside your control, other types of KPIs and metrics that don't necessarily apply or take into account the time that it takes to really sort of mature an organization and mature a team. One of the biggest challenges right now, of course, is recruiting and hiring. Um, but what's what I've been uh, delightfully surprised to see is, uh, especially going around and, and attending several different conferences this past year, is really hearing folks talk about um, a lot of the career path topics that you and I just discussed, and also some of the projects that are happening uh, in a lightweight way. And not even necessarily a project, but a product is Slack. Is a great example of keeping things simple and using a lot of uh, what's been well established in engineering practices and bringing that over into design. At least from what I've seen, from a product or service perspective, I think there you know there's there's a lot of things that have been uh, working really well lately and that kind of come and come around and. You know, they have their first wave and then they fade off a little bit and then they kind of have their second wave. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Uber. It'll be interesting to see what happens with companies like Stitch Fix and TaskRabbit and a lot of the services that, uh, at least in large uh, cosmo- cosmopolitan areas where those things have many, many customers, many happy customers. The other interesting thing I'd love to, to I, I'm really paying close attention to, is the airline industry, figuring out. Uh, how do you evolve a service model for the airline industry? Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. What can that look like? I know that people have been talking about it for for you know decades now, but um, it'll be interesting to see what the next iteration of that looks like for us, for air travelers.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you, Kristen, so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Mary. I really enjoyed it.
0: You can reach Kristen through her Twitter handle at B-E-T-T-A-Y. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn so you never miss an episode.